Well, again, we're glad that you're here. Uh, good to see you again. And by the way, I can still clean a bathroom. <laughs> Just don't tell Pam that, you know, so. But uh, glad, glad that you're today. We've been having some remarkable Sundays. I don't know if you've caught it or if you follow it, but for the last three Sundays, We've had over 2,000 people in attendance at Grace, which was just fantastic. I mean, we're, we're really excited about that. And just to let you know, if you want to find out more about Grace, there is a 101 class. That's kind of a, a starter for that. It'll actually be in, in two weeks, two weeks from today, and it meets during third hour, and we feed you a Subway lunch while we're doing that. So keep that in mind. Uh, let us know if you want to do that, but if you just want to crash, that's okay too, so uh, we'll, we'll be excited to have you. And then last Sunday, how many of you went to the outdoor baptism? Boy, we had a wonderful time, and uh, I'm going to show you about that, but just before I do that, I want to remind you of one more thing. Some of you probably got in a traffic jam last week. First of all, I apologize for that. We, we just have this kind of influx of people. There is a way through our construction area. You know how I was telling you? that everything kind of flows around the building counterclockwise, there's actually a way through the construction site uh, that's gravel, so you can go out this way and out to Smith Road that way. I'm just letting you know, just saying, you can do that. So keep that in mind so we're not all jammed up. Hopefully that'll help you. And uh, I know some of people have been parking over at the rec center, and just a lot of things are happening. We're trying to you know, find the grass and cool stuff. But anyway, last Sunday, if you, if you weren't there, here's what you missed. We're proud of all those who, who got baptized. Just a great time. We're, we're in our end times series, and uh, this is our fourth week. We're going to wrap it up. You're probably expecting me to say one more week, you know, because that's what I did last week. But we're going to wrap it up today. And just as a recap, remember the first Sunday we talked about uh, biblical prophecy, how we can prove the accuracy of biblical prophecy and the authenticity of Scripture, really scientifically, we can go back and prove that. It's a great apologetic, a defense of the faith, and we take that seriously, the Bible, the Word of God. And then the second Sunday, we, we talked about all, the whole blood moons theory and what's going on with that. We examined that in light of what Scripture actually says, so that was the second time. Then uh, last Sunday... We talked about some of the things that we see happening in our world today that are lining up with what God is telling us is going to happen in Scripture. And we especially focused on the, the modern nation of Israel and how that's all happened. And, and really, that's, that's a whole spectacular story in and of itself. And, and just bringing all these things together. Now, today, we're going to try to wrap this up kind of fill out a, a kind of a comprehensive timeline and pull it all together, but we're going to have to cover some ground. Are you ready? ready? All right, so let's do that. Let's cover some ground. I want to point out that a lot of this comes from the prophet Daniel. Jesus referred back to Daniel, and he had his 70 weeks. We've talked about 69 of those weeks. Uh, there was two, then 62, and then uh, the last week, the 70th week. And uh, we'll get to that. But Daniel also made another prophecy about world powers. And, and that in, starts in Daniel chapter 2. It's the prophecy that he had uh, when he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the statue. If you remember how that went, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And it was really a prophecy of future world kingdoms. And those all came to pass. And he also had some other dreams that lined up with that from Daniel chapter 7. 
that had a goal, that's Babylon. Babylon existed 605 to 539. And then the chest and arms of silver, that's Medo-Persia, 539 to 331. By the way, Daniel lived his life at the end, kind of toward the end of Babylon and the beginning of Medo-Persia, although all his prophecies were made before that, but, uh, but he was around for that. And then Greece, the belly and thighs of bronze, 331, 150, that's Alexander the Great. It even goes into detail about how his kingdom, the, the kingdom of Greece, would be split into four parts and, and that it wouldn't go to any of his relatives. That was all prophesied. That all happened when Alexander died at a pretty young age and his four generals split it up. All that prophesied in scripture. And then the next, uh, the next was the, the Rome. And remember, this is Old Testament. This is hundreds of years before Christ that all this stuff was prophesied. Then the, the Rome, Rome was, by the way, it's this Greece period. That's why in the New Testament they were still speaking Greek. And that's why the original scripture is written in Greek, the New Testament part, because of that kingdom there, even though Rome was in charge when the first century happened. So Rome 150 B.C. to, fourth, to the fourth century. And, um, and this is how it's described in these things. And then there's a break. And then there's this last part, which is the feet of the statue, which is iron like the legs, only mixed with clay, which makes it unstable. That's the revived Roman Empire that's still yet future. And in another uh, vision, it was the ten horns and the little horns. So that still hasn't happened yet, the reunited Roman Empire. And I'd like to read just kind of a, a passage of Scripture describing that in Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 23. It says, Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. And as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three of the kings. So we have this yet future kingdom, the revived Roman Empire. Uh, we look at that uh, you know, possibly being the, the European Economic Union. I'll explain that in a minute. But we see all these things coming. And in that revived Roman Empire, there'll be ten kings then, and represented by horns. Then a small horn springs up. He subdues three of the kings. And then eventually, over a period of time, controls all the kings and the world. And that's the Antichrist. So what we're going to do now, you just kind of need to know that background. That was all prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus which was 2,000 years ago, Jesus was, so a long time ago. What we're going to do now is kind of put together a timeline, and I want to tell you exactly what the Bible says is going to happen, and then I want to speculate, and please notice the difference, on how that might come to be. So we're kind of looking at two things. One, what the Bible says, and we can take it to the bank, it's going to happen. The Bible's never wrong, and it's 100% accurate in prophecy, so we know that's going to happen. But then I'll also include how I think that might happen. Well, now that's just what we're thinking. That, you cannot take that to the bank. That's just speculation. So we get the difference, right? All right, so let's go through that. Um, what's next? Pulling it all together, how it might happen. First of all, we talked about the rapture and uh, where that fits in. We're saying pre-tribulational rapture means that this church age, which is not on our chart because we've blown it up now, that we, if we're true believers, that we are snatched up, that we are 
uh, in a blink of an eye, as described for us in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that we are taken up and out in John 14, that we, we just go up to meet Jesus in the clouds in the air, and then we go back to heaven, and there's marriage, supper of the Lamb, beam of seat judgment, but we're not going to talk about that. But anyway, that happens before the tribulation time. I just want to make you aware that there are different views on when the rapture happens. Some people would put it in the middle of this week called the mid-tribulation rapture. Some people would put it at the end of this week called the post-tribulation rapture. And then some, there's a, a fourth view that puts it in the second three and a half years, and that's called a pre-wrath rapture. So those are the four views, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, and pre-wrath. Now, the, pro, the reason that we don't believe in, that, that we kind of hold to a pre-trib rapture is this. Actually, somebody came and talked to me, and, and some people think this. Some people think that Christians like to think of a pre-tribulation rapture so we don't have to go through all the tribulation time. Okay, but I'm telling you, Scripture's teaching that we as believers should expect persecution. Jesus was persecuted. He told us that his followers would be persecuted. So we're not getting out of anything. We're saying, no, God's taught us it's not health and wealth and prosperity. God says things are going to get bad, and if you're a follower of Christ, expect to be persecuted. Jesus told us that. So that's not the reason we're, we're pre-trib. We're pre-trib because if the rapture happened in the middle of the tribulation period, you would actually be able to know the very day that the rapture happened because it would be exactly three and a half years after the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel because when that event happens, that peace treaty, a clock starts ticking that's exactly seven years long using a 360-day year, which is what the Jewish calendar did. And you could count, count it down to 1,290 days to the day of the rapture in the mid. And it's even said that way. It's seven years. It's put in 42 months is half. 1,260 days is half. I mean, it's all just spelled out for us perfectly so we'd know right down to the day. Same problem with post-trib. If it was a post-trib rapture, we would know the exact day when that was going to happen because all this seven years is calculated to the very day in several different places in Scripture. So we would know the day, and we don't know the day. And then the second best view is called pre-wrath, which means we'd kind of know the timing. We'd know within three years or so, but that's just happening right before the worst of the tribulation time, which happens in the second three and a half years, but not necessarily at the midpoint. They're just saying sometime in that three and a half years, so you can't know, so they kind of blend the views. Got it? But we're sticking with pre-trib rapture, but I wanted to explain. There are some other views. All right, now... The first thing that happens on the timeline, some people would say first, although there's a little bit of disagreement, is there's a war, the war of Gog and Magog. Now, before I describe this, I want to let you know, some people say this happens just before the peace treaty signed, which starts the seven-year tribulation, and some people say this happens just after the peace treaty signed. That has something to do with the peace treaty. Either way, it seems like the peace treaty is involved in this, but either right before or right after, so I'm saying we don't know 100% sure. The Gog, the, the war of Gog and Magog, it's very interesting because that was predicted by an Old Testament prophet named Ezekiel in Ezekiel 38. And then he started naming all these ancient countries that were going to come together 
in a coalition and fight against Israel. The weird thing about it is these ancient countries had nothing to do with each other. So it was like, how could this happen? This doesn't seem to make sense. And so he names these countries with their ancient names. But if we took the geographical location of those countries and put modern and the modern names, here's what that coalition would consist of. First of all, Russia, which is Rosh in Ezekiel 38. So Russia's in there, and then modern-day Turkey, and then all the, the Istans, uh, you know, uh, the Kakistan, Turkmenistan's, all those Istan countries that used in southern... Uh, Russia that used to be part of the Soviet Union that now have their independence and their, their Muslim countries. And then not only that, but Libya and Sudan. Now, I got to tell you, when this was written in Ezekiel over 2,000 years ago, it made no sense that these geographic locations would unite together because they're completely different cultures. They have nothing in common, but that's no longer true today. For example, all the Istans, those are former Soviet bloc countries, but they're all Muslim-influenced countries. And Turkey, a Muslim-influenced country, although Turkey is part of the economic union, but uh, the European Union, but that may change. And then Libya and Sudan, all those are Muslim countries. So now all of a sudden, oh, they do have a connecting factor. They're Muslim countries, and all those countries are against Israel because they're Muslim countries. So now all of a sudden that these countries would come against Israel, that makes perfect sense. That never made sense before. Now in the Bible, that makes sense. And then you throw in Russia, and you're thinking, well, Russia doesn't belong on that list. You'd think Russia wouldn't belong on that list, but guess what? Russia's all over the Muslim world. Russia's heavily involved in Iran Russia is heavily involved in Syria. In the news this week was about Russia's involvement in Syria as Syria is trying to fight ISIS. And just the headline that I read a couple of, within a couple of days was the United States, uh, our military advisors, talking to Russian military advisors about what they're doing in Syria. All of a sudden, this all comes together in a way that it never came together uh, in history past. So you just have to know that. And I'm telling you, just look up Russia, Syria, Russia, Middle East, and you'll find out. It's just news. Just, just do it off your news tab uh, in Google or whatever. And then the next thing is the Antichrist. And again, a little debatable which side of the treaty. But the Antichrist peace treaty with Israel, this starts the clock ticking. This is day one of the seven years of tribulation. That's to, we're told that. More than one place in scripture. So that you can take that to the bank. And what's happening here is, well, let's read Daniel 9.27. We've read this verse a few times. Remember, this is where he's described the 70 weeks. He's talked about seven weeks and then 62 weeks and then the 70th week. And he will make a firm covenant, talking about Antichrist. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's seven years that we described earlier. But in the middle of the week... He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So here he's talking about this peace covenant that the Antichrist will make with Israel. When that happened, when that treaty is negotiated, it starts. 
if the war of Gog and Magog has already happened, and by the way, it's God that destroys that army that comes against Israel, it could be that this all gets a lot easier. It could be that the Antichrist somehow takes credit for that. It could be that some of the main players that are causing trouble in the region are now removed. And so we can see how that could kind of come together. The very next thing is then that ushers in the seven years of tribulation. So again, exactly seven years, and it starts with the peace treaty. That's a slam dunk. We know that's the way it is. During this time, there are all kinds of judgments are poured out on the earth. First, judgments are described as uh, the seven seals are opened, like a scroll, snap the seals, snap the seals, snap the seals. Those are open, and each seal is a judgment. The first four seals are also the four horsemen of the apocalypse. If you read Revelation, that's the first four of the seven seals. And then the seventh seal is seven trumpets are unleashed. And then those are uh, judgments upon the earth. And then the seventh trumpet is seven bowls. So you have all this stuff that's happening all through these seven years of tribulation is there seven seals and then the seventh seal is seven trumpets. And then the seventh trumpet is seven bowls. They're kind of a telescoping judgments that are poured out on God. Now, the first three and a half years are three and a half years of peace once we get past this war. Israel's kind of living in security. Things are good. Uh, the Antichrist has made this covenant with them. It might be a covenant specifically for seven years or just a covenant that, that was intended that long. But then... All of a sudden, uh, everything changes. By the way, during this time, this is where we're saying that, that uh, the ten kings, the revived Roman Empire, takes center stage. And the Antichrist is somehow part of that. Uh, he comes in, there's ten kings. He comes in a little different, swallows up three of them and seems like to get, and gets influence of all of them. And so speculation now, we tie that into possibility is we see how that could be the European Union. The European Union formally started, although they had some beginnings before that, but it was formally started in 92. They started their currency, the euro. That went into circulation in 2001. And nations have been added to that. Right now, there are 27 nations in the European Union. And so that's a little different. So we're looking for, well, they're... You know, Scripture's saying 10, so we don't know exactly how that's going to play out. And then three are defeated somehow, and the Antichrist rises to control all of that. Also, during this uh, first half of this tribulation time, God raises up um, 144,000 Jewish evangelists, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And they start evangelizing the world, which leads to Israel being evangelized. Now, why would you need those evangelists? Well, because of the rapture, there, there are no Christians as we start out here. No Christians are here. So there's nobody that's saying Jesus is the Messiah. Put your faith in Jesus. God raises up 144,000 Jewish believers who start preaching the gospel to their people, which leads to a revival in the nation of Israel you got to understand right now in the nation of Israel, about 90% of the people are completely secular. They're not religious at all. Only about 10% of the Jews that live in Israel now are what we would call Orthodox Jews that are actually trying to follow the Old Testament in their belief and practice. 
but, uh, but they rejected the Messiah. They don't believe that Jesus is their Messiah. So it's this 144,000 that start evangelizing the Jewish nation and others. And not only the 144,000, by the way, there's a, a, a verse in Scripture that says this, Revelation 7, 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then there are two, besides the 144,000, there are two witnesses. And they have power. They can do things like Moses and Elijah did in the Old Testament. So some people speculate that they could just be two new people or they could be a resurrected Moses and Elijah. Some people speculate that it's Elijah and Enoch because they actually never died. They were actually translated up to heaven in the Old Testament. And so whatever it is, these two people have kind of special power and they start also evangelizing in the streets of Jerusalem. What also happens is these two special witnesses are actually killed after a time, I think after about three and a half years of ministry, they're killed. And then scripture says that the whole world rejoices over their dead body. The whole world sees them, be, sees them as they're killed and then watches their dead bodies. This is very interesting because if you think about it, before modern communications, this could have never happened. That's, I think, part of the reason that a lot of people in the past used to use an allegory type of way to interpret scripture, meaning you'd read it and think, oh, well, this can't possibly mean what it says, so let's just kind of assign some other meaning. That's a terrible way to interpret scripture, by the way. But now, all of a sudden, we're living in a time where the technology is advanced to where we can easily see how this happens. Oh, yeah, like any other major world event. We just flip on our TV, and there it is. We're maybe, you know, the first or, or closing in on the second maybe generation that could even see how this prophecy could even possibly be fulfilled. Otherwise, it was like you're lining up the whole world and they're all going over to Israel and, and viewing. And how could you do that in three days? That couldn't happen. It was all impossible. Now, all of a sudden, that's possible. So that kind of brings us then to the midpoint of the tribulation time. That's right flat in the middle. This is a very significant time. It's three and a half years in. And at that time, the Antichrist betrays Israel. He's, he's been saying he's their friend. Then he, as he gains more and more power, goes into the temple that's built. And that, that's another major thing. At this point, there's not only Israel in the land, not only Israel is, is over Jerusalem, which didn't happen until 1967, but at this point, there's a temple on the Temple Mount, which there is not there when they're now. And what happens is the Antichrist goes into the temple. He goes into the Holy of Holies, where only one Jewish man was supposed to go there once a year. And he seats himself on the, on the throne there, on the, uh, on the seat, and he declares himself as God. Now, people ask, well, how can that happen? How can you have a temple standing on the, whole, on, the, on the mount, the temple mount? Well, right now, the Israelis control the temple mount and all of Jerusalem. But they allow the Muslims to kind of control the temple mount within reason. Although Jewish people are allowed to visit the temple mount, 
but they're not allowed to pray on the Temple Mount. It's a dicey situation. Some of us have been to the Temple Mount, and when, when they take you there, and it's not always open to non-Muslims, but when they take you there, they give you all these instructions that you're not supposed to do anything to upset them. And I don't know if you've been watching the news lately or how in-depth you watch the news, but just in the last week or so, there's been a, um, a group of younger Muslim men that have been making it their business to show up on the Temple Mount and sort of harass any non-Muslims that are there and shout them down and force them to leave. To the point where this last week, Israel said, we're banning this one Muslim group of young people from going to the Temple Mount because they're going to start a riot, they're going to start a war. And uh, so that's happening in our news today. Well, how can they have a temple so fast? There's nothing now, but if times are close... Three and a half years from this peace treaty, there's a temple. Well, let me tell you, right now in Jerusalem, the Jewish people have been preparing some of them to build a temple. Think about it. If you're an Orthodox Jew, the only way for your sins to be forgiven was through animal sacrifice. And that was just temporary. But there hasn't been an animal sacrifice now for 2,000 years. Why? Because the sacrifice has to happen in the temple and now there's no temple. And so their Orthodox Jews are very invested. We have to have a temple. That's why they march up to the Temple Mount. They have got all the equipment that they need, all the uh, temple um, artifacts that need to happen, this stuff that the Old Testament describes that needs to be made out of certain materials like gold. They have all that ready. They have plans for a temple. Everything's in place. It's just having that control of the Temple Mount. It could be, now speculation, it could be that after that war of Gog and Magog, that a lot of the Muslim, heavily Muslim-influenced countries, a lot of them, it's not the ones, their immediate neighbors, have been destroyed, or, or their military power has been destroyed. So then that makes negotiations a lot easier, and it could be that the Antichrist kind of works it out where they have control of the Temple Mount, or it could be that Israel just takes control of the Temple Mount after that war at a time when uh, the Muslim countries have suffered a defeat. Not all of them, but, but a good part of them uh, through that war of Gog and Magog. Here's what else happens at the midpoint. We know that the Antichrist puts an end to animal sacrifice. You see what God's saying? He's saying at the middle of this time, there's going to be a temple and they will be back to their sacrificial system the Jewish people in Israel. And the Antichrist sees himself, declares himself as God, and stops the animal sacrifice is kind of what happens. Here's, here's how it's described in 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Paul's answering some questions about end times. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is what the Antichrist does. He betrays Israel, sits in the temple, declares himself as God, and then starts persecuting Jewish believers and also Christian believers that now have been converted, because there were no Christian believers left after the rapture, but Christian believers have now been converted as part of the ministry of the 144,000. You with me so far? 
Okay, and then at this midpoint, when the Antichrist does that, that's called the abomination that causes desolation. What's really interesting is Jesus Christ talked about this as well and referred his hearers back to Daniel. That's what ties all this together. In Matthew chapter 24, uh, beginning in verse 15, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. What he's saying there is, hey, watch for this. What's really interesting about Jesus saying this, he says this in Matthew 24, and how this conversation got started at the very beginning, first two verses in the chapter, is, the, is Jesus and his disciples are leaving Jerusalem. They're walking out the city gates. And then the disciples say, wow, check out the temple. And they're looking at Herod's temple. It's actually still being constructed, but the temple's completed. And they're saying, and, and it's a great temple. It's huge, it's big, it's bigger than Solomon's temple. You know, all it's just, it's great. And they're pointing out, look at this temple. And then remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, hey, in, in not too long, not one stone will be upon another. He's saying, this, is gonna, this temple's gonna be completely wiped out, which happened less than 40 years later after he said it. Now, a few verses, so then they ask him, well, when's all this stuff going to happen? And then he starts going through this scenario of everything that's going to happen. And then in the middle of that scenario, guess what? There's a temple again. Because he's talking about the Antichrist seating himself in the Holy of Holies in the temple. So here Jesus is saying, hey, oh yeah, here's a temple. It's going to be destroyed. And by the way, when you see all this and this and something else is going to happen, a guy's going to sit himself in the temple. All this is, that's all kind of like prophecy just in that one conversation that they had with Christ. Now, the second three and a half years is called the Great Tribulation. This is all the seven years of tribulation and Daniel's 70th week. But the second half is the Great Tribulation because things are intensifying. And uh, there's persecution against the, group, the Jews and tribulation Christians, as I mentioned. The Antichrist gets more and more leadership of the world government, and that becomes fully in place. And then Revelation 13, 7 tells us that it was given, also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. That's the persecution I was talking about. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation that was given to him. So now, in the second half, he's got firm control of the entire world. Another thing that we need to know about end times is just like, God exists in Trinity. Um, Satan kind of comes up with a mock Trinity, a false Trinity. And that consists of Satan or the dragon as described in Revelation. Also the Antichrist or the beast. But then Revelation also tells us that another beast comes who is later identified as the false prophet. The false prophet that exists at this time is a religious leader who starts declaring that we should all worship the Antichrist. He performs signs and wonders. He deceives the world into worshiping the Antichrist. He's got authority to kill anybody who's unwilling to worship the Antichrist. And then he has a way of making that happen. And that's where the mark of the beast comes in, the mark of the Antichrist. It's the false prophet who says you have to have the mark, the 666, the mark of the beast, in order to buy and sell. Now think about this. He's identifying people who haven't capitulated to the Antichrist. And then somehow the false prophet gets in control of the world economy. 
No way this happens before our generation. Think about it. How does a guy get control of a world economy? You've got everybody everywhere, you know, with all kinds of currencies and everything else. You just don't see how this can possibly happen. Now, with our technology today, as we become increasingly a cashless society, this can happen very easily. One way is that cash goes away. That can happen very easily. Why? Because it costs a lot of money to print money. And a lot of people, how many of you kind of do all your business and you don't really carry cash and you don't write a lot of checks? Everything you do is with a card, a debit card or a credit card. It's just, you know, a lot of young people are that way. You know, they just do everything with a card. Well, all that has to happen is some governments say, hey, we're getting rid of cash. We're going cashless to save money. This will be better. And then the problem, then everybody does that. Now everything's through computer, and now somebody can control that. Then the only problem is you have a card. Well, the problem with having a card is you lose the card, right? Oh, I left my card at home. I lost my card. My dog ate my card. You know, whatever you have there. But then, so they say, well, we're going to embed this in you. We're going to put this, you know, tattoo it on you or put it in visible ink or put it in a chip. And, uh, and it'll be on your hand. And if you don't have a hand, it'll be on your forehead. Right now, we have people telling us all the time, put a chip in your dog. Put a chip in your child. It's just a matter of time. When that happens, then all fraud is kind of gone. You know, so there could be a lot of positives with that. But what happens is we have governments now that can completely control every economic transaction. And so today, our generation is the first generation that can see, oh, this is how, how what, a hundred years ago, nobody could ever imagine how that can happen. Now we're reading this going, oh, this is how this can happen. So I'm just saying. Revelation 13 says this in verse 16. And he causes all the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark. Either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man. And his number is 666. So you, everybody's heard of the 666, right? This is where it comes from. You know, don't be adding up the... Alpha equivalent of Kissinger and all that stuff that people did in the past or Reagan or whatever. You know, it's 666, but we don't know exactly how that is. That's what's happening. And then at the very end of the seven years and the end of the Great Tribulation, the second three and a half years, is Armageddon. And uh, Armageddon happens uh, at the very end, and that's when uh, there's another battle. There's actually three battles we're talking about. This is a picture of uh, Megiddo, and uh, this is Mount Megiddo. It overlooks this valley. You can't really see all the picture, but this is actually a picture hanging in my office. But you can just see this huge plain. This is where this another army assembles for Armageddon. And this time, it's Israel against the world. The Antichrist has the whole world behind him. There's a 200 million man or person, army. By the way, we never knew how there could be a 200 million person army. In 
times past, there was hardly 200 million people. I mean, think about that. Now, China alone boasts a 200 million person army. We could easily see if it's the whole world and kings of the east, China, coming together under the Antichrist's leadership, how that can happen. And it's at this battle, Armageddon, the second battle that we've talked about, that Jesus Christ comes. It's the second coming of Christ. And uh, I want to read a passage of scripture that kind of describes this battle. And remember, this was written by John in the first century, Revelation 9, verse 16. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million, and I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. I want to pause right there for a minute. So here's a first century man who sees a vision from God that's of future events. But understand, he has a first century vocabulary. Are you with me? He's never seen a tank or even a car or even an engine or a gun because none of those things were invented. So now here's him describing with first century words what he saw. The riders had breastplates, the color of fire and hyacinth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. We see a first century man trying to put what he sees in modern warfare into, into his language as best that he can. And then again, the second coming of Christ, this is what Jesus was talking about now. At the second coming of Christ, this, and this is what everybody's talking about, and this is what, you know, the whole point usually. Nobody will mistake the second coming of Christ. Here's what Jesus told us. Hey, people are going to say in the future, I came back, and I'm here. I'm hiding out over there. Go check me out over there. He says, do not believe them. When I come back... Everybody will know. They won't have to be told. They'll know. And here's how he describes it in Matthew 24, beginning of verse 27. For just, this is Jesus' words, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, talking about how visible it is, so will the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures were gathered. He's talking about signs there. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, notice after, Tribulation of those days. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. You see, Jesus Christ is saying, when I come back, nobody will have to guess anymore. The sky will open like a scroll. It'll be lightning from one side of the sky to the other. Everybody will know. And the tribes of the earth that's been rebelling against God the whole time will weep and mourn because of it. That's what we need to remember. When Christ comes, he ushers in something called the millennial kingdom where he actually defeats the armies at Armageddon and he sets up an earthly reign and he does that for a thousand years. That's what millennium means. So he, he binds Satan, casts him into a pit, 
locks him down there. He reigns on earth physically for a thousand years. Who's he reigning over? Well, going into this, there were all the remnants, the Jewish believers that weren't, hadn't been killed yet, the ones that Jesus told to flee when all this stuff is happening. Also, there are tribulation Christians that aren't Jewish because of the 144,000 evangelists that they start believing. And now they enter into the millennium just as people. And they start repopulating the earth during that thousand years. And that happens really fast because there's no wars or anything. Jesus Christ reigns. And then why thousand years? Well, at the end of the thousand years, God unlocks where Satan is and Satan comes out of the pit for one last rebellion. And he gathers with him all the people on earth, even at that time, people who are alive during the reign of Christ, who still rebel. Even at this time, Jesus Christ is still unwilling to force people to follow him. And so there's evil in people's hearts. All the, the people who have been born through the millennium, some of those people are deceived by Satan, they rebel against God, and then there's a final war, the third battle we're talking about today. Sometimes during that battle, Gog is mentioned, and Gog is mentioned in a broader way there, so don't confuse the two. Those are two distinct battles, Gog and Magog, and now even though Gog's mentioned at the very end. And then Christ puts that down and destroys Satan and all his followers, destroys the earth, the heavens and the earth with fire, and there's a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and the eternal state. That's the timeline. That's what God has done for us. Now, there's not only just the signs we see, but God's also telling us there are moral signs of the last days. And I want to kind of close out with, with some of this. Second Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lover, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, Avoid such men as these. This is Paul saying, hey, there, here's how things happen. Things don't get better in our world. They actually get worse in our world. And then remember, why is this important? Why even spend four, four weeks talking about this? Well, because we're told to watch for the signs of the times. We already talked about how Jesus said that in one place. Here, here's another place where Jesus says that at the end of chapter 24 that we've been talking about. It says, now learn, the, he uses an illustration, Jesus does. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. So I just point out that it's Jesus himself telling us that we need to be able to look around and kind of see what's happening and realize that these are signs to the end. We can never assign a date. We don't know the day or the time he's coming. He's told us that. But boy, when this tribulation time, we can count it off. It's the rapture that we have no idea what initiates all this stuff when that's happening. 
So some people would ask, well, Kevin, a lot of this stuff was written 2,000 years ago. New Testament. You know, they would have been shocked to know 2,000 years later, Christ hasn't come by. Why the delay? Actually, Peter answered that question for us. Why the delay? Peter 3.9 says, 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see what he's saying? He's saying, hey, he's not coming. He's delaying his return because he wants all to come to repentance. So what, so what for us? Well, as we've said before, if we're believers, we're called to watch and to wait and to live in the light of knowing that this could be our final day. The Lord could come back, or we can also just die a physical death. We're not guaranteed, any of us, another day. And what if you're not sure you're a believer? If you're not sure you're a believer, you have this opportunity to come to Christ. And it's an urgent opportunity. Because God is not, we don't know when the rapture is going to happen, which will usher in the tribulation time, which is going to make everything harder, not easier. And just our physical lives, we're not promised another day. Probably, you know, next week, there could easily be some people that are here with us now who have passed, who have died. We, we could die going home today. Give your life to Christ. Trust Christ. God loves you. He created you. He loves you in spite of your sin. And he's made a way for, for him as a holy God to be connected to us as sinful people. And he did that as a just God by making a way for us to be forgiven. But because he's just, it required a tremendous price. And the price was the death of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago. And the way we receive that forgiveness from God that we don't deserve, none of us do, is simply by placing our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, realizing there's no good deeds that can erase one sin. There's no religious rituals that can make me okay with God. It's just my heart trusting in Christ alone and realizing I can contribute nothing toward my own salvation. It's a gift from God. And I want to give you uh, just an opportunity to respond to that. I'd like us all to bow our heads. If you're not sure where you stand with God, I don't want to close without giving you this opportunity to place your trust in Christ. Just believe who he is. Believe that you're a sinner. I am who Christ is and what he's done for us. And when you have that faith in Christ, you can express it to God this way. And so I'd like you, if you're unsure... And only you and God know if you're sincere, but if you can just sincerely express this to God, it's not about a magical prayer. It's placing your trust in Christ. And when you do that, you can say this, Father God, thank you for loving me even though I don't deserve it. And I recognize that I'm a sinner. And Lord, I also understand that even though there's nothing I can do to make up for my sin, you love me enough to make a way. You allowed your son Jesus to come to earth 2,000 years ago. And he who had no sin became sin for me. He died to pay for my sins. God, I thank you for doing that. And Lord, my trust is in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. And I know there's nothing I can do to help that. It's just a gift. 
And I'm placing my trust in you and I'm asking you, God, to come into my life through your Holy Spirit and help me to live in a way that's right. Thank you for loving me in Christ's name. Amen. We to keep our heads bowed for just one more moment. Uh, if you're on the left side of the auditorium, my right, your left, and if you've prayed that prayer sincerely, I would like to pray for you and I'd like you to raise your hand and indicate that. I won't call you down or embarrass you. Just let me know. You could look up here. Everybody else has their heads bowed and uh, just, just so that we can be praying for you as you get started in your new life with God. So on this side of the auditorium, anyone? Just hands up. I see you right over there, sir. Thank you. Put your hands up and right back down. I see you. I see you. And I see you. Anyone else? Just hands up. I see you way back there. Thank you. And then over on the other side, you're right. If you prayed that prayer, just say, hey, Kevin, pray for me. Saw you right there. See ya. Thank you. I see you back there. Thanks. Anyone else? Just say, yeah, Kevin, pray for me. And I just prayed that prayer. I've just put my trust in Christ. Just put it up. Put it back down. Let's stand together. Father in heaven, we thank you for these who have... Uh, place their trust in you just like so many of us have. We thank you for your goodness. Thanks for bringing us together as church. Lord, thanks for Grace Community. Help us to live in a way that pleases you in Christ's name. Amen. If you want more information, you can stop by room one. Thanks for being here and thanks for letting me be your pastor. Have a great day.